we're good. All right, well, good morning, church. Um, my name is Zane Sutherland, and I am the kids minister here. And that light is bright, isn't it, bud? Um, and this is our new son, Elias Allen. Um, and so as I was preparing for the sermon this week, Justin brought up boxes last week. And so I thought, we'll trump him and bring a baby on stage. Um, so I'm always nervous to do this, but your move, Jim, Last time I did that, like, I don't know if you were here for the last sermon I preached, but the sermon after, it didn't go too well for me. So uh, we'll see what Jim does next week. But um, I tell you what, being a new dad is one of the coolest things in the world. Um, it has been such a transformation and such a change, even in the last two weeks, um, to see this little guy um, come into the world and grow. Um, and it has been so, so much fun. Uh, you know, the crazy thing about being a dad, though, is... Um, that people love to give you advice. You know how that goes, right? Um, and even some of you here have done that. And, and I'm sure the best intentions, and it's all good. I mean, that's, there's, there's several good things, right? Um, but this morning, what I want to do is I want to tell you four of my favorite funny ones that I've heard recently, okay? Um, and some of these have come into play quite recently as well. Um, so advice number one that we got, um, humorous advice, was to make sure that when you're changing a newborn baby boy, especially, um, to be prepared for anything because... You never know when, you know, he may just have to go to the bathroom in the middle of a changing and stuff. And so uh, a couple nights ago, um, I was changing him, and uh, my jaw dropped in amazement as he produced a stream that was crazy impressive. Um, and he shoots better than Steph Curry, and so with a wide open mouth, it... Yeah. That's why you have to listen to advice, right? Okay, so th that was uh, funny advice number one. Um, and again, we, we're learning to learn with, or to live that out a little bit. Um, advice number two was that you don't get much sleep with a newborn baby, and if you know me at all, like I love to sleep, um, or, or I did. Um, and so one of the pieces of advice that we heard was if you have a newborn baby, once he starts crying in the middle of the night, just pretend you're still asleep because then your spouse will wake up and they will take him right? Um, and so I, I don't live that out. I, as soon as he cries, I wake up. I'm nodding at my wife and she's not acknowledging, so um, I'll let you do with that what you will. Um, the third piece of advice that we were given was to never trust the first story. And so this is obviously um, a little bit down the line when, when Elias grows older and stuff. But um, I was talking to my father-in-law a little bit and said, so, so give me a piece of advice. And he said, well, never trust the first story. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know how kids are great storytellers and they collaborate with each other um, to, to try and make something a little bit more embellished so that they don't actually have to tell the truth. And I, I see some parents already looking at me nodding going, yes. They're liars from the get-go, right? And so we've learned to, to not just like trust the first story that we hear out of his mouth. Um, and so those were, those were three of the funnier ones that we've heard. And of course, we were given good advice, like, you know, make sure you love your wife still, and make sure you love him and cherish him, and all, all that's good and stuff. Um, but one of the pieces of advice that, that actually I was given that I found really interesting was somebody told me, um, you're just like every other dad out there, right? Um, and at some level, that's true, right? Um, there have been, like, years and years and years and years and years and years and years of dads who have come before me. And, and at some level, I am just like the rest of them, right? I mean, there, there, are, there are universal principles that every dad has to experience, right? 
Um, I, I remember standing in the delivery room. Um, Beth had a C-section, so we were in the operating room and hearing his first cry and, and knowing in that moment my life is changed. Like, it, it's crazy as, as a dad, like your life changes like that. You know, one, one second you don't have a kid, the next second like I have to keep this thing alive. Like, and that's terrifying, that's, that's crazy, it, it's, it's wild. And so, you know, there's that universal truth that, that as soon as this little boy is born, um, like, things change. <laughs> and, and now I, I'm responsible for him, um, which means that I have to provide for him, I have to take care of him, I have to protect him, um, which is it's so easy to do when you look at him like this, but when he's screaming and yelling, it's a little bit harder, right? Um, you know, and then there's the universal truth that like 3 a.m. diaper change, they just have to happen, right? You know, like the, that's another thing. Dad's like, you, you know where, what I'm talking about, right? That 3 a.m. diaper change where like wife is getting frustrated. He's peed six times, you know, because we didn't cover, we didn't listen to advice number one. And so everything is wet, everything's dirty, and you're just like, man, it's amazing how much your little body can produce. And so, you know, there, there's these universal truths. And so, you know, at some level, like, yeah, I do stand in a line with all these other men who have just been dads. And, and at some level, I am just like you, just like you. Um, but at some level, the, the second piece of advice is, although you are, you are just like every other dad out there, um, you're not like every other dad out there. Um, there are some things about Beth and I that make us uh, different, that make us unique than, than the rest of this world. Um, you know, we, we believe in Jesus. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but like that changes everything, right? Like that changes the way that I approach Elias. Like that changes the way that I look at my son and, and how I choose to raise him and, and what I choose to make important, not just to, to him, but to our family. It, it changes the, like my priorities. It changes all of that. And so in that level, like I am different than the world because He's not my world. You know, even in this moment, like where I, I could, for the rest of my sermon, just forget the rest of you and stare at him, right? Um, yeah. You're not my world, though. You know, and that's kind of a crazy thing that we have to remember. And, and at the same time, it's not just that, but it's also that, you know, we have a community here at Sunnybrook. It's one of the reasons that we chose to move from Missouri here is that we have a community of believers that surround us that, that like, you don't let us fail this whole parenting thing, right? Um, like, we, we've joined into a community with you so that at some level, like, we're accountable to you and we, we're expecting that you help us raise our son, you know, because we can't do this alone. And so at, at that level, like, Beth and I realize we're not alone. And in that sense, like, we're different than a lot of the world. Like, we have, we have great people here to help us raise our little boy, um, and then the, th the third thing that makes us like crazy different than the rest of everybody is that both of us come from great families. Like the history that we have of good parenting um, and the examples that, that we grew up seeing are, are incredible. I mean, my mom and dad get in tonight and like I can't wait for them to, to hold their grandson and to be able to look at them and just say thank you. You know, thank you for the example and the, and the history that I have of, of seeing you and knowing that, that you've you've prepared me well to raise my son in a way that honors God. And in that sense, I'm, I'm not like every other dad out there. 
And so that's something that I have to believe about myself, that, you know, in, in the hard moments, that there, are, there is a community around me, and that there is, there is this history of knowing what it looks like to do this and do it well. And it's so special. And so with all that being said, what that ultimately means is, is that, like, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm without excuse, Right? Like, I, I'm without excuse. I, I have every opportunity to succeed in raising my son in a way that is honoring to God above. And like, at some level, I, I'm without excuse. Like, at, at some point, all of this advice that you guys have been giving to Beth and I over the last several months, like, we, we now have to put into practice, okay? And we, we actually have to do. Um, and so we, we cannot wait to see this little man's journey and see how he continues to develop and grow. And so he is getting ready to get fussy, and so I'm going to hand him off real quick to my beautiful wife. Um, So if you want to look for a second, it's totally fine. He's amazing. Oh, there you go, big guy. Aren't kids amazing? I mean, that, that, that little man has completely changed my life in the best way possible. And I love it. And so um, here's kind of what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the text and we're going to realize that Paul is going to say um, roughly the same thing about us as Christians. Um, that at some level we are, we are quite similar to those who have come before us and yet at the same time we are radically different from those who have come before us. Um, because we have Jesus, because we have all these different gifts. And so, um, like Justin said, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so if you have your Bibles um, and can open there, we'll be uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. Um, And we're going to start just kind of looking at the text and figuring out what Paul is trying to tell us today. And so, um, if you would, let's read kind of the first four chapters, or the first four verses. So Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... We're all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same, or and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay. Um, Now, now remember kind of the context of what we've been talking about over these last several weeks. Actually, what Paul is doing here um, in chapter 10 is he's actually going to begin to wrap up this conversation on meat sacrifice to idols that he began all the way back in 8.1. Okay, and so this argument, what he's doing here to start is he's actually calling you to look back into the past and look back to Israel to see kind of what, what their story can teach us, kind of in the same way that, that Beth and I look back to our story and, and to our parents and, and we hear all of your stories and, and are trying to learn from them. Paul is going to do kind of the same thing and he's going to say, hey, I want you to learn from Israel's past. Okay, and this is how he starts. He says, um, understand this, that all of your fathers were blessed. They were covenantially blessed, okay? So there's a covenantal blessing that, that goes over everybody. I don't know if you caught it when we read it, but there are, there's six times, five times in this where he mentions the word all, okay? And, and, and what that means is that because Israel, when God rescued them out of Egypt and called them to be his chosen people, what happened there is he blessed not just some of them, but he blessed the entire community of believers, 
okay? And so this is a blessing that goes over every single person. And so we see God already in the beginning of this covenant relationship that he's provider, he's the sustainer, he's the one that blesses, he's the one that protects. And, and, And this is the picture that we get. And so as God is bringing them out of slavery in, in, in Egypt and into this freedom where they're able to be his people, we see some really cool things. And so verse one and two, I, this is this picture of this Exodus motif, right? Um, we have, brothers, I, I don't want you to like, I, I want you to know what's going on when it comes to us serving God, us being in relationship with God and why this whole idol meat thing matters. He says, all of our fathers were under this cloud. And so you, you know that story from back in kids' church, right, where as, as God is leading his people out of Egypt, they come before the Red Sea, and, and, and as Pharaoh's army is approaching, okay, this massive wall of cloud comes down and it separates them. And, and in this, this is kind of God saying, like, no, I need you to realize already there is a separation between the rest of the world and my people. And that same, same thing is kind of true for us as well, right? That, that God is drawing a distinction already that, hey, these are my chosen people. And then that becomes even more evident as the Red Sea parts goes wide open and they pass through the sea and they are baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea as, as verse 2 finishes up. And, and what this is, it's, it, it is this baptism. It is this confirmation that God has said, not only have I set you apart to be my chosen people, that, that you will be covenantially blessed by being with me. But now, now not are you just set apart, but you are confirmed to be mine. Right? I, you have seen and you have tasted my saving work and my saving grace already. But, but that's not where it stops, right? Because as, as Israel begins to wonder and they're in the wilderness, like, what do they do? Hey, we're kind of hungry, right? Because that, that's what I would do, right? How many of you have gone on a road trip and like six minutes in, like, hey, are we stopping for food anytime soon, right? And so they, they begin to grumble and they begin to say, like, God, we want some food. And so God does what God does, is he blesses and he saves his people again. And he, he pours manna down from heaven and they're like, I just wish we had meat, though. And so God sends quail, and he begins to continue to bless and bless and bless and bless. And and then, of course, you know, you can't can't complete a meal without the drink. And so they're like, well, God, all of this is good, but now we're a little bit thirsty. And so God, again, provides, and he saves his people. And and, and what Paul is wanting you to see in this first little bit here in verses 1 through 4 is this, that God blesses his people. Okay, and this isn't something that just some of Israel experienced. This is something that every single person that was set apart and confirmed to be a part of God's chosen people, everyone experienced it. Everybody ate the manna. Everybody ate the quail. Everybody drank from the rock. And and the crazy part about this, I don't know if you caught it, was that that rock was Christ. And so at some level, like, Jesus is present in this, right? You know, sometimes preachers get in trouble for looking for Jesus under every Old Testament rock, right? Okay, but the crazy thing here is Paul is actually saying, like, no, Jesus is involved here. Like, Christ is actually a part of this blessing, okay? And, 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 in, and in the same way, right, we have, as believers, experienced a lot of the same blessings as, of God. Right? We, we now have entered into this covenant relationship with Jesus through our baptism, a lot of the same type of here, that there is a separation. We are set apart to be a holy nation before God. We have been baptized. We've been confirmed into his presence. And, and because of that, like now we all have experienced the same blessings, right? I mean, you think about it. We, we have the presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit. 
right? And, and think about how different that is from what Israel had, right? They saw this giant pillar of cloud and this giant pillar of smoke, and, and, and they had the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt, and yet, like, look at us. Like, we have God's presence dwelling in us. Like, what a crazy gift that we get to receive. But not just that, like, we, we also have the spiritual food. Like, God feeds us on a daily basis. Like, he is consistently um, engaged in our daily life, I mean, what a blessing that is, and yet, how often do we just miss that? Like, how often do we look at the things that God has blessed us with and say, oh yeah, those are things that I've worked hard in order to accomplish. <laughs> oh, silly you, and me. I do it all the time, so. And so the crazy thing about this, though, is that all of, the, all of them were blessed, and in the same way as God's chosen people, all of us are blessed. I mean, we could spend the rest of our time talking about all the different blessings that God has given to us to be adopted, to be sons and daughters, to be a part of his kingdom, to be set apart, to be holy, to be forgiven of sin. And yet, verse five happens. This is where it gets a little crazy. Verse five, it says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown or killed in the wilderness. That's kind of a sobering statement for me. You know, as I, I've loved getting to, to prepare for this message, and I've really grown to love this, this text, but um, verse five is hard. Because here, here's what it means, is that all of these people, they experience the saving grace and the saving gift of God, right? That, that's what verses one through four tell us. All of Israel experienced this. And yet they turn their back. And because of that, they're destroyed. You know the crazy part about this? Only two grown men from this generation that Paul is talking about, Paul is referring to, make it into the promised land. Only two grown men. With most of them, God was displeased, and because of that, they were overthrown. And so the question is, so why does that happen? Like, what, what happens in Israel's mind? Like, were, were the gifts not good enough? Like, why did they turn their back? Why did they turn away? And if you turn to verse six, this is where it gets crazy because now we move from covenant blessings to covenant failure. Verse six starts this. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And there we find the problem. Is that at the end of the day, <laughs> They desired the things of this world more than they desired God himself. They looked at the gifts and, and they, they abused and misused and turned them into things that they were never intended to be. That's unlike anybody you know, right? That, that we take the blessings that God has given us and we, we misuse them, we abuse them. We actually hold those things up as idols in and of themselves and, and, and they turn these things into evil. And, and here's the crazy part about this. Verse five and verse six teach us that God isn't just the sustainer. God isn't just the provider. God isn't just the one who protects. He's not just the rock and the shield. But the part that we don't like about God in this covenant relationship sometimes is that God is in fact the judge, and I need you to know that this morning, folks, because there is a moment in time that when we misuse the gifts that God has given us, when we misuse the, the saving gifts that God has blessed us with for our own purposes, for our own wills, there will come a time where we have to, we have to give an account. 
And I think we, we don't remember that. We don't say that enough, that God, yes, he is the shield and he is the rock, but he is also a judge, which means that he is looking and he is seeing how you use the things that he's giving you. And the problem for Israel is that they, they didn't use the things that God had given them. They didn't use their freedom, like Justin talked about last week, in a way that honored God. Instead, they, they used that to, to build their own kingdoms and to become more of themselves. And so Paul gives us actually four different ways in which they do that, okay? Um, if you look at verse 7, it says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. So verse 7, this is referring back to the golden calf. Okay, this is Paul referencing that moment in time where, man, think about this for a second. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, and the presence of God is there in a the cloud, thunder and lightning and all this other stuff. And, and God is telling Moses in that moment, this is what it looks like for you to be my chosen people, right? So that's happening. And then down at the foot of the mountain, you have people saying, uh, let's make a statue and let's worship that. And in the first ten commandments, God was like, do not, guys, do not remember. I said, don't make idols. And so he said, like, immediately, how quickly you turn and you take these things that I've given you and you flip them and you turn them into the thing that you worship. How broken that is. And so problem number one, they desired evil, they desired idolatry, they desired a picture, this statue, they wanted to see something, they wanted to be like the rest of the people that, that were around them, that had a physical thing that they could, they could worship. And God looks at them and he says, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not contained by a tiny statue of a calf. That, that's not who I am. I'm so much more than that. Why, why limit me? And so idolatry, huge issue. Number two, in verse 8, it says this, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 of them died in a single day. Think God's serious about sin? You know, how, how often do we read a verse like that, and we're like, oh yeah, 23,000 died in one day. No, like, if that happened in today's world, like, CNN would be going nuts, Right? 23,000 people up and die in one day. Like, God is serious about this sin thing. And this goes back into Numbers 25 where, where the people of God, they looked around at, at the Moabite women and it says in Scripture that they hoard themselves out to them. And, and as they join these Moabite women in sexual relations, what happens then is that they begin to be like, hey, you know what, in order to keep this relationship okay, what we'll do is we'll begin to follow your gods and we'll begin to, to look a little bit more like you so that you feel a little bit more comfortable and how quickly God's people began to lose their identity as God's chosen people who were, separate, who were separated, right? And now they began to look like everybody else. And so God says, man, be careful about this. And be very, very careful about who you choose to tie yourself to. Because how quickly did this this relationship flip and turn and lead them into what ultimately is their destruction. Okay, so number one, idolatry. Number two, sexual immorality. Uh, number three says this, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and they were destroyed by serpents. Okay, so again, you know the story of, of the serpents where um, God's people, they begin to grumble against God or they begin to not trust God is, is ultimately what, not, what testing God is. They say like, hey God, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that like what you've said is actually true. I, I don't know if I can actually believe in your promises. Right, you guys ever do that before? Like God, I know that you've said this 
And I know that you've said you've given me freedom, and yet I'm not 100% sure that I can actually believe what you've said. So instead of like me trusting in your promises, and instead of trusting what you've actually told me, um, I'm going to go ahead and try things my way. Ooh, that one hits home. <laughs> and that, that's this idea of testing God. When, when we look at the provisions and we look at all the good things and the promises of God where he said, I will take care of you, I will forgive you of your sin, and I will uphold you, I will sustain you. And we say, God, I know you've said that, but I don't know if I can fully trust that. And so I'm gonna do some work on the side and how quickly the work that we do on the side to try and save ourselves becomes our new identity. Right? God, I know that retirement is coming. I know that life after like working is coming, but instead of like me trusting that you're gonna take care of me in that time as you have my entire life, I think I'm gonna work a little bit extra hard and set more money aside and how quickly money then becomes an idol. Or God, you know what, Here, here's the thing, like I, I, I love, I, I know that you've, you've blessed Beth and I already, um, but here's the thing, like I, I don't know if you're good enough, like as, as you raised me, um, I, I don't know if you're good enough for, to like fully provide for Elias, and so here's the thing, I'm gonna work extra hard, and I, I'm gonna do all these little things to make sure that Elias has the best life he ever can. And in that, now my son has become an idol. This incredible, beautiful baby boy, isn't he not amazing? Right, but how quickly he becomes an idol. And we test God, and we test God, and we test God, and we say, God, I don't know if I can fully trust your word. I don't know if I can fully trust what you've said. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God. Verse 10, nor grumble, nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And this is the idea that they looked back to Egypt. You know, when you're in the wilderness as they are, um, I'm sure even with the amount of grace gifts that they've received of the manna and everything else, I'm sure it is kind of hard to be like, man, wasn't life better back in Egypt? We had food, we had water, we had jobs, we were fine, we had roof over our head, if nothing else. Like, God, what are you doing bringing us out here into the wilderness? Are you just, just bringing us out here to die? It was so much better in my last life. Like, I'd rather take slavery instead of the freedom that you've offered. That's this idea of grumbling. Okay, and, and that's what they did. They said, man, I want to go back to my life of sin. I want to go back to my life of slavery. God, if this is the best that you have for me, if this wilderness time is the best that you have for me, then I would rather have slavery. And God said, don't. Man, remember the big picture here. I am leading you to the promised land. And even though there's this little bit of time where because you've turned your back on me that you have to experience some things that um, ultimately you've chosen, right? Let's get that right. This isn't God like saying, hey, I'm gonna punish you for nothing. No, like Israel had turned their back on God. And so like his reward to them is the wilderness wandering. And so as they're wondering about this, this wilderness, God says, like, listen, I'm leading you somewhere so much better. And yet because you're so nearsighted and because you don't want to endure, like you want to go back to slavery? Seriously, like that's what you want. And how broken that is. And yet this is where I think we're pretty similar to Israel or that we can be. It's probably a better way to say that. Because when, when I look at this world, we still have idols, right? 
They're not in the shape of a golden calf. They're not in the shape of this massive temple. Um, well, maybe they are. It's called Tiedemann Pickens Stadium. Um, we still have idols. We still have things that we choose to raise above God himself. There's still sexual immorality. There's still the temptation uh, to partner ourselves with things that draw us away from God. We, we still don't trust God at the, same, at the level that he wants us to. And how quickly we turn from God and say, man, I miss my old life. Like, God, this life that you've called me to, like, when you tell me to take up my cross and deny myself, like, that's kind of hard. It's like, yeah, and? He's like, don't you remember heaven's waiting? So he wraps this kind of section up of this covenant failure in verse 11, saying, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of age is coming. So here's what, here's what he's saying is that like in that moment when Israel was being judged, when Israel was, getting, was reaping what they had sown, like it was an example to the rest of the people saying, listen, this happened to your forefathers, don't let it happen to you. And Paul is saying the exact same thing. He's saying, guys, do you not understand? If, if God's chosen people could taste the gifts that God had given them and still turn their back on him, why do you think you're any different? People, the temptation is exactly the same as it was for Israel as it is for us today. Like, think of all the things that you have experienced in the blessings of God. God has blessed each and every one of us with so many good things. We have forgiveness of sin, which I, I don't think we fully understand. I don't know if I fully understand. I don't, I don't know how good it truly is to, to be freed from, like, the weight and guilt of sin. And yet God says you have freedom in that. And yet you're turning and going back to it? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. And so Paul's warning to all of us is be careful. Actually, that's what he says. Check this out in verse 12. And this is where he kind of explains, so, so how do then we not be like Israel? He says in verse 12, therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Here's the problem with Israel is that all of them thought at some level, like, hey, look at, look at this. Because I'm God's chosen person, like, surely I won't be judged. And, and, and there was this arrogance, there was this self-dependence that grew in Israel that said, well, you know what, here's the thing, because I am God's chosen person, because, because God loves me, then I can go and I can do anything else that, that I want to do. I, I can go hang out with the Moabites, I can, I can make this idol, I can grumble against God, I can do all these different things, and because God is who he is, he will forgive me. That sound like anybody? You know? That sound like yourself, Maybe. You know, and, and Paul's warning is, how often do we stand arrogantly before the throne of God saying, God, I demand your grace. I'm going to go do what I want to do, but I demand that you forgive me in that moment. And, and God goes, are you crazy? Like, that, that's not how this works. He's saying, stop playing games with me. Stop thinking that you can go do your own thing and then come back before me and say, like, I demand your grace. People, that's a dangerous place to be in. And that's what Paul says. If you stand arrogantly before the throne of grace and demand that God forgive you, it's a dangerous game that ultimately will lead to your fall. And so he said, for those who think that they are strong, 
And be very, very careful because your strength will always, always, always fail you. He said, but for the rest of you, <laughs> who I, I kind of I deal with verse 13 a little bit more. Um, for those of us that are like, man, I can't seem to stop falling into temptation, right? Like everything seems to be a challenge for me, right? Anybody else feel like that? Or maybe, maybe you don't feel like the person that stands here arrogantly and demanding grace and all that other stuff, but maybe you feel a little bit more like verse 13 where it's like, God, why, why do I keep going back to this? I, I don't get, like, I, I love you and I want to be yours, and yet I keep going back to the same broken thing time and time and time and time again. God says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that has, is not common to man. Don't you guys realize, like, all of this stuff is the same? <laughs> and in that regard, like, we are the same as Israel. Like, the same things that they dealt with are the same things that we're going to deal with. We're going to deal with the same broken patterns that this world always has. We're going to have the same broken idea of we want to try the things of this world and then come back to God and expect his grace. It says this, God is faithful. Not you. You have a tendency to turn your back, but God, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so he says, oh, weak Christian, you who feel like you continue to go back, stop trying to beat this by yourself. There's no possible way that you can. Actually, what he calls us back to um, if, you, if you want to flip in, in Colossians chapter 3, um, Paul kind of gives us a little picture of like what it looks like to actually deal with this. And this is what I want to call you back to. Um, Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. It says this, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the, this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then, and then, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Does that sound familiar? Impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do all of those things literally sound like exactly what we just read? So yeah, all these things that we deal with <laughs> <laughs> the exact same things Israel dealt with, people. Like, it's not different. But this is what Paul says. He's like, hey, if you're weak, that's a good thing. Because I need, I need you to remember the flow of how this happens. This doesn't start with you overcoming your sin. Do you guys catch this? This doesn't start with put to death, therefore. No, it starts with if you've been raised with Christ. This starts with us understanding our identity and who God is. And in this, we are different than Israel. Because we don't have the, the taste of the saving grace of Christ being the rock that gave water. No, we don't have a taste of that. Like, we have the real thing. We have the cross that we get to look to. Right? We get to see Christ's work at fulfillment. And see that he has not saved us like at one time and, and quenched our thirst, but now he has quenched us for all eternity. He has satisfied the debt that our sin has, has put us in debt for. And so, and so he says, Paul says, man, if you want to get this right, understand first and foremost your position in God Almighty. He says, realize that you have been saved by Christ. And now, 
now he is the one that is advocating for you at the right hand of God. He is fighting for you. His presence is dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, set your minds not, not on destroying sin. You guys see that? It's not like, hey, set your minds on destroying sin and then you'll overcome it. No, it's, it's set your mind then on the things above. Set your mind on the things that God would have you think on. Like change your thoughts, right? This is the repent and believe cycle that we talk about all the time here at Sunnybrook. But it's repent, believe, become more like Jesus. And he says, then put to death. And so he says, weak Christian, understand this. You, you have no strength in and of yourself, but God who is faithful will give you the ability to overcome. And I don't know about you, but that's something I needed to hear this week. Right? And I, I don't know what your idol is. I don't know why you grumble against God. I don't know what you choose to, and I, I don't use this flippantly, but I don't know what you choose to whore yourself out to over the course of this week. Um, I don't know why you grumble against God. But God says, just come to me. Remember me first and foremost. Um, servers, if you want to head to the back, we're, we're going to get ready for communion. In this last section of our scripture today, um, it actually, it, to me, this prepares our hearts for communion. Um, it says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Saying, realize you can't stand against this. My dad always used to tell me growing up, man, there's three different forces in this world. There's God, there's you, and there's the devil. He always used to remind us, which, which one of those three do you think is the weakest? Hands down. He said, so why, why do you think that you can stand? He said, flee from idolatry, run from it. Like, have no, nothing to do with it. That's what Paul's saying. Like, there should be this, this like, you know, the, the flight or fight, like, syndrome, right? This should be like, you know, we can't stand against this, and so I'm going to run from the things that I consistently go back to. It says, flee from idolatry, brothers. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And so he's saying, like, hey, you figured this out. I'm not arguing anything that sounds crazy. Like, this is reasonable, it says, the cup, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? I want you to hear that word participation because it's gonna be huge in this little section. And when, we, when we drink the cup of blessing, it is participation with God, with, with Jesus' blood. Like there, there's something happening there. Like we're, we're partnering ourselves with Jesus in that moment. And the bread that we break is not participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we partake in the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And so he's saying, like, remember Israel again here, folks. Like, remember that, that when they ate these sacrifices, I mean, that was their moment of saving. Right? That's, that's when their guilt and that's where their sin was forgiven. And so he's saying, in, in the same way, like how much greater than the cup and the bread that we take? It says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, nor an idol anything? He's saying, listen, some of you may come back to me and you may argue, listen, it's just meat, right? It's just a little wooden figure. It's not that big of a deal. And at some level, Paul's like, yeah, here's the thing, it is just meat. It is just meat sacrifice. It's just a hunk of steak, right? Or it is just a little wooden statue. 
But the crazy thing is that when you eat this stuff, you give it a scary reality in the context in which you do this. He says, actually, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And in the same way, you think about all the different things, all the different tables that we sit at over the course of the week and that we participate in. All these different temples to idolatry that we have set up in our lives that we go to worship at day in and day out. And these grace gifts that God has given us that we have turned and abused and misused and now have set up as an idol. And what Paul is saying is realize, yeah, it might just be a piece of meat, but how you're using it right now is demonic. This is tearing you away from relationship with God. And so what does he say? He says, I don't want you to participate with demons. I don't want you to partner yourself with demons. Because verse 21 is so huge. If you underline in your Bible, underline this. It says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What he's saying is, is guys, you can't come here on a Sunday morning and take the cup and take the bread and pledge your allegiance to Jesus. And then turn your back and go and do your own thing over the course of this week. And so communion is kind of a big deal. Um, I know I'm guilty of this at at times just because of the busyness of life and because um, I've got so many other things running through my head. It's easy for me to sit in those seats and to take the cup and to take the juice and to just take it and to not realize what's actually happening in that moment. And so here in a second, I'm going to call the men to come on down. um, And we're going to take communion together. And I want it to be a moment where you choose who you're aligning yourself with. And I want you to, to take a look at yourself. And I want you to see, am I, am I guilty of standing before God and demanding his grace when I go and I do my own things? And in that, am I taking communion in a wrong way and abusing what this truly is? Like, am I pledging allegiance to Jesus here at church and then denying him when I go and do my own thing in the, in the world? Or, or for some of you, maybe, maybe this time needs to be, God, I am so sick and tired of living in my own strength and losing to temptation after temptation after temptation. And so God, as I partake of this, remind me that I am sealed in your blood. Remind me that it's not my strength that I overcome temptation with, but it's yours, that you've conquered once and for all. And in that power, God, I have freedom from temptation and I have freedom from sin. So I, I, I don't know what needs to happen in your hearts right now, but you do. And you and the Holy Spirit, I, I, I know this because we've prayed for it so many times already this morning. I know that the, the Spirit is thick in this place. And so I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask, guys, you can come down and start passing this out. As, as, you, as you grab the cup and as you, you grab the juice, just hold it for a second. And I want you to truly realize what you're holding in your hands. I want you to know that this is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who has set us free from temptation who has set us free to live a life that's worthy of the calling. And so I'm gonna be quiet for these next couple minutes. 
And I want you to just think, where, where do you stand? Where do your allegiances truly lie? And so, brothers and sisters, may we not be found guilty of abusing the gifts that God has given us. But my prayer for us this morning is that as, as we eat and drink well together, that we would claim our allegiance to Jesus, not just in this place, but on a daily basis. And so take the bread and eat well. Take the cup and drink well. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the challenge and the hope that it gives. So Father, may we be found to be faithful with, with the things that you've blessed us with. Um, God, I pray that as we live our lives this week, um, that you would give us protection from the idols that we've built in our lives, and that you would allow us the ability to tear those down and to refocus our minds on you. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, believe at this point you are dismissed, and so go, live well, and we will see you guys next week.